Thank you for tuning in to the audio podcast of Renaissance Church, a new church plant located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please check out our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like more information about joining the launch team of Renaissance, or if you would like information on how you can partner with us to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. So we're in Mark chapter 8. Today we've been journeying through the gospel of Mark. And uh, I want to ask you a question as we get started. Have you ever heard of the term rose-colored glasses? If I say the term rose-colored glasses, do you know what I mean by that? Anyone confused or never heard of this phrase before? So the idea, the idea of rose-colored glasses, the definition, according to my great uh, resource, Wikipedia, uh, is an optimistic perception of something, a positive opinion. It means to see something in a positive way, often thinking of it as better than it actually is. So I'm an American. I, was, I grew up in the U.S., and I grew up in a college town, and so uh, the sport of choice was college football down south. And as a result, once August starts rolling around, everybody starts getting super excited because it's football season. Football season is close at hand. And you can sit down in August with any fan of any team, and they will begin to explain to you why this year is the year. Things are going to be different this year. And it's like they see all of the positives, and it's like, but you don't even have a quarterback. Well, no, no, yeah, he's a true freshman, and yeah, we had to, like, sign him as a walk-on because no one wanted him, but this is our year, man. This is our year, you know, and and everyone has these rose-colored glasses. And as we go into Mark chapter 8, we kind of see that this is what's happened with the disciples, Leading up to Mark chapter 8, verse 27, everything up till now has been kind of really good. Um, Jesus is kind of like going through and he's like, boom, you're healed. You can walk. Boom, you can see. Hey, you, you can't speak? Boom, now you can speak. And the disciples are like, hey, this is pretty awesome. You know, this is great. Uh, This is what it means to follow Jesus. Then like, Hey, this is a pretty awesome life. Right before this, Jesus has fed two multitudes of people, one of 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fishes. And then a group of 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. So the disciples are like, hey, if following Jesus is this, uh, yeah, sign me up. I'm down for this. This sounds awesome. The disciples, if have begun to develop a bit of rose-colored glasses. They've begun to view discipleship as something optimistic, as something positive. And they, as a result, they have lost the definition of what it truly means and what it will truly cost to follow Jesus. So everything pre-Mark 8.26 has just been awesome. But this is the high watermark, if you will, of the gospel of Mark. Mark now begins to turn the focus. Chapters 1 through 8, the goal has been to show Jesus' authority and his divinity, to prove that he is God. But from this point on, what he's trying to do from here on out is to say, and this is what it means 
and the cost to follow him. Jesus now begins to deconstruct their view that following Jesus will be rewarding on earth. And so now he begins to change the way he speaks to them. And he begins preparing his disciples for his death, his crucifixion, here in Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. And what we see is this pattern that begins to develop as we go through. Jesus will, uh, will predict his death, and then the disciples will make a failure of some sort. And then Jesus will instruct them on what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. He does this three times from Mark 8 unto his crucifixion. Today we're going to be trying to answer this question as we look at our text. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus is going to tell the disciples and define to his disciples what it costs to follow him. So in, four, in a fourfold answer, it means that they must submit to his person, his passion, his price, and his promise. Let's look together at our text here in Mark chapter 8. We'll start at verse 27. Mark 8, 27. And the scripture tells us, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Hey, who do people say that I am? What are, the, what are the crowds saying about me? Who do they say I am? And they told him, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. You're not the, the, the Messiah, but you're the one coming before the Messiah. And others say you're one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the entire world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and to read your word. God, we thank you for the gift that you've given us in the scriptures. We thank you that God, you for thousands of years, 
so that we could have a copy of the Bible today, that we could see your revelation to mankind. That, God, you do not abandon us, but that, Father, you sent Jesus, God in the flesh, to come and show us your love for us. Father, we pray and ask today that as we look at this passage in Mark chapter 8, that, God, you will give us spiritual eyes to see what you're calling us to do, to do to follow Jesus, what it means, what it requires. And, Father, we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would equip us with the obedience to do just that. Lord, we understand that in doing so, in the proclamation of your word and in the obedience of it, you are glorified. So, Father, we ask that, that we will glorify you in response to the word today. Father, we can only come and ask this in the name of Jesus. And it's through him we pray. Amen. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, we've talked so far, I, I, you know, I felt kind of weird in even asking this question because I feel like this is a very, like, typical question of a sermon. But in essence of our passage, this is the essence of our passage, is answering this question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And that is ultimately what Jesus is trying to portray and paint to his disciples at this point. What is it going to cost to follow him? To follow Jesus means that we must submit to the, his person, who he claims to be. It means that we must submit to his passion, what he has come to do. We must submit to his price what he requires that we give. And then we must submit to his promise. What will happen if we do follow him and what will happen if we do not? So we see first submission to the person of Jesus. So to kind of paint the picture, we're in Mark chapter 8. And up to this point, again, Jesus has been performing miracles, proving that he is God in the flesh. But now he is alone with his disciples. They have seen some of the most amazing things the past few months and years of their life as they've walked with Jesus. And Jesus is walking with them. They're going to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, verse 27, he asks them this question. He says, who do people say that I am? Hey, who do the, who do the, who do the, the people, the culture, the world around us say that I am? And they told him, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Now, in the Hebrew culture, the idea of this idea of Elijah, there was a prophecy that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And if you remember, Jesus is talking with his disciples earlier, and he says, Elijah has come, referring to John the Baptist himself. And, and others say that you're one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And boy, this is the question of life, isn't it? This is ultimately the question, not just of his disciples, but of all of us. Because this question is the foundation of every other decision we'll make in life. Who is Jesus to us? Is he a good man? Is he a heretic? 
or is he God in the flesh? Graham preached about this idea just a few weeks ago. He's either a good man, but not God. He's either a bad man who claims to be God, or he is who he claims to be, and he is God in the flesh. But who is he to you? That's what Jesus wants to know as he looks to his disciples. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being Peter, is always ready to give an answer, isn't he? I think so often as I read the Gospels, I'm like, man, I see a lot of myself in Peter. Peter's an extrovert. Peter's a person who likes to speak without all of the facts. But here, Peter is right on the money. And he says, you are the Christ. Now to us, this idea of the Christ, often we just kind of associate Christ with Jesus, with Jesus Christ. Isn't that like his last name or something, you know? But to, in a Hebrew culture, this is entirely different. The word here in the original language in the Greek, it comes from the word Christos, but it comes from the actual Hebrew term where we get the term Messiah. That term Messiah means an anointed one. Manser defines it like this in his dictionary of biblical themes. He says, an anointed one, a Messiah, is the coming of a figure chosen and anointed by God to deliver and redeem his people. Anointing was seen as a symbolic sign of being chosen by God for a specific task of leadership or responsibility. In the Old Testament, there were three, people, three types of people who would have been anointed in Israel. A prophet would have been anointed. A priest would have been anointed before he began his ministry. Or a king would have been anointed. And the old, but the Old Testament looked ahead to the final coming of a figure who would usher in a new era, and this figure would come not just as prophet, not just as priest, not just as king, but all three in one. This figure would come in and usher in a new era in the history of God's people. And the New Testament sees this expectation fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Jesus asks this question to his disciples, Peter jumps at the answer and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah that we have been looking for and anticipating. Daniel chapter 9 verses 25 and 26 is the prophecy that Peter is referencing. He says, know therefore and understand, Daniel 9 25, that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood, and there and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This is giving us an ultimate picture that there will be an anointed one who will come and will bring peace out of this uh, tribulation. And they were looking forward to this anointed one, this figure. And as Peter is speaking, he says, you are 
that anointed one. And Jesus immediately responds by strictly charging them to tell no one about who they've realized that he is. So we have to begin by submitting ourselves to the person of Jesus. We, we have to submit to this. If we're going to truly follow Jesus in discipleship, it means that we must submit to him as God in the flesh. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was not just a good man, but he was God. He was God in the flesh. He came. He took on our flesh. If we were to jump all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we see man's rebellion from God in the garden. And as a result, man sins and, and he disobeys God. And God had told him that as a result, you will die from your sins. And God comes to man in the garden after he has sinned and rebelled. And he says, where are you? And man's hiding. Adam is hiding in the garden and he finally comes out and he says, well, you know, I ate of the fruit that you told me not to. I disobeyed. I rebelled. I, I sinned. And God in his grace clothes him with skin, kicks him out of the garden. But he gives him a promise in Genesis 3. He says, one day a man will come and he will defeat the serpent the one that tempted you and talked you into sinning, he will defeat him. He will bruise his head, but he will also be injured at his heel. And so, this, so the Old Testament keeps looking forward to this figure, this anointed one of God. And now Peter is standing here and saying, you are this anointed one that we have been looking for. We as Christians believe that this is Jesus, that he came as God in the flesh. He lived a sinless life. While we are full of sin and brokenness and disobedience to God, Jesus never disobeyed. He was tempted like you and I are, but never sinned. As a result, he, his death on the cross is sufficient to save anyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus. So in order for us to follow Jesus, we must submit to who he claims to be. We must submit to the fact that he is God. We don't get a say in defining who Jesus is. We have to submit to his person. Not only that, we have to submit to his passion, what he's come to do. So Jesus asks them, who do you say I am? They say, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one of God. And then verse 31, the scriptures tell us that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So we see here the Son of Man's prediction in verse 31. This is the term Son of Man, while to us may not mean much, just looking at the scriptures, but Jesus is using this title for a reason. It was his favorite designation of himself, implying both his messianic mission, but also the fact that he is still fully human. You see, Jesus has come in and he's telling them, hey guys, I'm going to die. And then we see his prediction, then we see his react, Peter's reaction in verse 32. Can you imagine the gall of Peter 
You know what I'm saying? Verse 32, look at the passage. And he said this plainly. So what, he, what the passage means here is he's talking about his death openly. The crowd's there and like, you remember what's been going on up to Mark chapter 8. Like everything's going really good. The crowd's following Jesus. And he's then all of a sudden starts talking about dying. And Peter's like, you know, you can imagine Peter like, Jesus, Jesus, listen, hey, you know, hey, listen up, Jesus. You know, like, we've got a good thing going on right now. And if you can't tell, we've got quite a crowd following us. Like that guy, you, you made him walk. That chick was dead, you know, like. It, this, what you're talking about right now is not very positive. So let's, let's change the tune a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, can you imagine the gall to pull Jesus aside and be like, dude, what is wrong with you? You know, pull the uh, Stanley Hudson out there. If you, if you watch The Office, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and then Jesus pulls the Stanley Hudson back. He's like, boy, have you lost your mind? Because I'll help you find it. Verse 32, the scriptures, or verse 33, now Jesus uh, responds to Peter. And he says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter. And he says, hey, Satan. Now that's quite a nickname, you know. Hey, Satan, get behind me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I have not called anyone Satan for a very long time. Maybe a few ex-girlfriends, but that's about it. But some, one of my closest followers, ouch, that has got to hurt, you know? But as we think about the Lord's rebuke, a commentary, uh, put it this way, without realizing it, he says, Peter was tempting Jesus the very same way that Satan did in the wilderness. If we remember, Satan tried to get Jesus to win human allegiance in any way but death. But Peter didn't realize that suffering death and death was the plan of God. Peter's mind was centered on their success on the pride of life, maybe this actual authoritative role in a literal physical kingdom of Israel that he'd be like Jesus' right-hand man, his homeboy, if Jesus is king and they overthrow the Romans, like, dude, this is going to be awesome. And Jesus has to correct Peter and say, hey, God's plan is the cross. What is required to glorify God was redeeming mankind through his death on the cross and nothing less. And we, but we have to submit to the passion of Jesus. You see, often we can look at Jesus in two different ways. He's like this lucky rabbit's foot that like if we pray to him the right way, he'll give us everything we want. And up till now, that's kind of how Peter's viewed Jesus, that like he's going to give me everything I want. And then Jesus says, no, that's not, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to give you everything I want. I'm not here to obtain everything that the world could give me. I'm here to die. I'm here to die, and that's the plan. And he calls Peter out, and we have to also submit to the passion of Jesus. What he's come to do is not make us successful. 
what he's come to do is make us eternal, give us eternal life, and restore a relationship that we broke with God the Father. So we see submission to the price or the, the passion of Jesus. And now Jesus begins to paint a picture then of what it means to actually follow him. He's like, listen, guys, apparently you don't understand what it's going to cost to be a follower of Jesus. So let me kind of explain to you again what it, the cost will be. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he begins to paint the picture. And he calls the crowd to him with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, we don't get to set the conditions of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. If you intend to follow Jesus, he sets the conditions. And these are it. Number one, self-denial. The word here in the original language means to claim no knowledge or relationship to a person. It's like saying, hey, yeah, that was me before Jesus. Yeah, that was Ben Fleet before Christ. I don't know him anymore. Paul put it this way later on in the New Testament. He says, the life I now live after Jesus, I live by faith in the Son of God. No longer, it's no longer about me. It's about Jesus Christ. It's, it's in and, and through him. It's for him. So number one, self-denial. The word here in the original is also used later on when Peter himself denies Jesus the night before his crucifixion. Jesus says, or Peter says, I do not know that man. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to make that claim about your old self. He says, number one, self-denial. So, number two, you have to pick up your cross. Now, to us nowadays, the cross is a cute Christian symbol. But to an audience controlled by a Roman empire, the cross was a heinous device. It was single-handedly in their time the greatest torture device that the Roman empire had developed. And they used it as often as they felt they needed to. The highest value in the Roman Empire was the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And if anyone dared disrupt that, we can crucify you. We don't care. And many of these people had probably seen crucifixions in their lifetime. It was gross. It was grotesque. They would beat a man. They would nail their hands and feet or tie them up onto this cross and then watch them basically for hours. The way it would work is you would you'd have your arms up here, and so in order to catch a breath, you'd have to push your body up to catch air, to get air into your lungs, and then you'd come back down. And you would go through this until your muscles failed and you would basically suffocate. Or if the Romans just got tired and they got bored of this, they'd just break your legs and watch you die out. And so as Jesus stands here and he says, you have to pick up your cross, he's not calling them to pick up some cute religious symbol. He's calling them and saying, be prepared to die. 
as we, as if you were to trace church history, Judas hangs himself after he betrays Jesus, which leaves 11 of the, the disciples. And out of those 11, 10 die a martyr's death. Several of them die on a cross themselves for following and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is God and that Jesus has come to deliver us of our sins. So while to us, it, yeah, like this is a picture of persecution, to Jesus, he's like saying, hey guys, you may fully well die. You probably fully well will be martyred if you follow me. If you watch the first few hundred years of church history, there are waves and waves of persecution. And to, to even today, persecution is still happening all around the, all around the world. Christians are being murdered for following Jesus. On top of that, we see persecution today even in our own culture. And Jesus says we have to be prepared to pick up our cross and pay the price and the sacrifice that it will require to follow him. And then finally he says, follow me. Now, and to us, the idea of following someone is not foreign. We know what it means to follow someone. Say, hey, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, uh, trying to think of a good restaurant for lunch. I'm going to Alamancoco for lunch. Who's following me? You know, maybe we could all walk together. You guys know what I'd be talking about. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus is using this term in a, in a term for rabbinical discipleship. And they would have known exactly what he's talking about, to follow. You understand Jesus was a rabbi? He was like an itinerant rabbi who walked around and taught the Bible, the scriptures. That's who he is. Robbie Gallaty really paints an amazing picture of what they would have thought when Jesus talks about following him in this book, uh, Rediscovering Discipleship. And, and Josephus talks about discipleship. He was, Josephus was a Jewish historian and talks about what it meant to follow a rabbi, to, to, to become one. There was a threefold educational program in the Jewish world. At five years old, boys and girls would come together and begin to be taught the, the, the Old Testament scriptures. And then after three or four years, they would take the best and brightest of those kids and allow them to move on. And at that point, they would be going, begin going through a series of tests to know, see how well they know the scriptures. And then from that point again, they would take another test. And at every point, as they're kicking people out, they're sending them back home. And so that only the elite are allowed to go on and become rabbis or followers of rabbis and later Pharisees, members, scribes, members of the Sanhedrin, and so on and so forth as their lives develop. It was like the highest calling in the Jewish world, which meant it was only for the elite, the smartest and brightest children. And so as Jesus is saying these words to his disciples, they knew it. They knew what this meant because most of them had already been kicked out of this program when they were younger. You remember, like, where does, where does Jesus find Peter or James and John? Where does he find Andrew? They're fishermen. They started in this program, 
but they weren't bright enough to continue. So guess what they got called to do? God's calling you to go home and fish, you know? And now Jesus is giving them another opportunity, calling people again to follow him. What Jesus is standing here saying is, it's not about how much you know. It's about if you're willing to pay the price to follow me. So we see submission to the price of following Jesus. We don't get to set the conditions of becoming a follower. Jesus has set the conditions already. Number one, we have to deny ourselves, deny our old life, our old sinful lifestyle. We have to be willing to pick up the cross, pay the price, and then follow him and obey his teachings as our rabbi. And then he leaves us with a promise. The submission to the promise of following Jesus. Hey, yes, there is a cost to pay. And there is a reward if you do it and a penalty if you do not. First, we see the promise of sacrifice. Look at verse 35. Verse 34, it says, Calling the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You know what he's saying? There's a lot of people out there in the world that are trying to earn eternal life or some sort of eternality on their own. And as a result, they will lose it. We can't gain eternal life on our own. We cannot find full life on our own or trying to make ourselves happy. But he gives us this promise. He says, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The word here for lose is not what we often think of lose where it's like, babe, have you seen my car keys? This is something that happens like daily in our household. Um, that's not what he's talking about. They're like, daggummit, I lost my life again. But rather, he's talking about the, the idea in the, in the Greek literally means an intentional destruction. That we choose to say, that was my life, but I am destroying and getting rid of everything that could get in the way of me following Jesus. I think a really cool picture of this is found in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we see this idea unfold. Elijah is a prophet. He's been preaching about God and calling the nation of Israel to repent. And Elijah is about to move on. He's about to uh, be called up to heaven. And in the process, God is preparing someone to pick up his ministry. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, it says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Now this paints a really cool picture. Elisha is a farmer, and he's not like living on just the bare essentials. He's been a very successful farmer. It says he has twelve yoke of oxen. Now the yoke would carry two oxen each, put them together to do the, the work of plowing, which means this guy had 24 oxen. In his day, that's like owning uh, a Porsche, you know? Uh, this guy's been very successful. Maybe a really big tractor. Maybe that's a better description. Um, but he's been very successful in farming. 
It says he was with the twelve. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. This was symbolic. It was saying, hey, I'm calling you to follow me. And he, Elisha, left the ox and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said, well, go back again for what have I done to you? And notice what Elisha does. He returns from following him. He takes the yoke of oxen, all 24, and sacrifices them. Boils their flesh with the yokes of oxen. So he's burning the yokes as well. And he gave it to the people, and they ate it. You know what he did? He destroyed his old life. What he was doing there is saying, I am not even leaving. I could give these oxen to my parents. I could give the yokes to them and say, hey, best of luck. I'm moving on. You know, just in case. Maybe this whole profiting thing won't work out. But instead, Elisha says, if this is what God has called me to do, I'm going to destroy everything that could prevent me from following and obeying the call of God. And not only that, he doesn't even keep the meat. He gives it to the people and they ate. You know, we see that the counter of this in the New Testament when Jesus calls the rich young ruler. You remember the story. Jesus has this rich young man come to him and say, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you know the, the law. Do not kill, do not steal, honor your father and mother. And he says, well, I've done all of this from my youth. And he says, okay, go sell everything you have and give it away. And then follow me. And the Bible tells us that the young man went home sad because he had many possessions. Unlike Elisha, that man was not willing to part with the things of the world. But Jesus gives us a promise here. In verse 35, he says, Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writes in his book, uh, Discipleship, Following Jesus is a costly grace. He describes it as that hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. It is the costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells all that he owns. It is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you will tear out an eye if it causes you to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. And it is costly because it is discipleship, but it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. Did you get that? Again, remember, Jesus has called these men and said, follow me. God in the flesh is standing here and saying, hey, not just to the disciples. He pulls the whole crowd together and says, hey, if anyone wants to, if you want to follow me, you can. This is the invitation, but this is the cost. But this is the reward. You will find life in doing so. Because in doing so, you find Jesus. The greatest thing we could ever possess is a relationship with the God 
that we rebelled from. And this God stepped into eternity and did everything so that we could have restoration with him. But we must be willing to leave everything behind to do so. So we see the promise of a sacrifice. Hey, you want to follow me? There's a price to pay. But then he gives us also the promise of shame. We cannot, in, in, whether we choose to accept Jesus or reject Jesus, we cannot avoid shame. We will be ashamed. We will be put to shame one way or the other. He says, for what does it profit a man, verse 36, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? But then he gives another promise. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You get what he's saying here? What he's telling us here is that to accept Jesus is to accept shame. We live, Jesus was speaking in an adulterous and sinful generation. He describes it as that himself. And this generation will put to shame anyone who's willing to believe and to follow Jesus. But at the same point, there will be a day when this Son of Man, this Messiah, this Anointed One, will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, restore God's rule and reign physically on this earth. And at that day, everyone will be held accountable. And the adulterous and sinful generation at that day will be put to shame. So no matter how we dice it, there will be shame. It's whether we choose to accept the shame of following Jesus from the world now And we get to, as a result, enjoy the benefit and reward of ruling and reigning and worshiping Jesus for all of eternity. Or we reject Jesus. In Matthew and Luke, when they write these same words, they they describe it this way. Whoever will deny me before men, of him I will deny before my Father. So we can choose to Accept Jesus and accept the shame of the world or reject Jesus and be ashamed by God in the end. If we're ashamed of ourselves, you understand Jesus is speaking and he describes this generation as adulterous and sinful. And he's not just speaking of the generation in front of him, but all of humanity since the rebellion of Adam and Eve. He's calling us to face our own sinful shame, to see our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, and respond to the good news of who he is, that he is God that stepped into our world, paid the penalty for your sin and my sin, and we can choose to repent of our wrongdoing to turn from our sin, believe on Jesus, and be restored into relationship with God the Father. 
Or we can see Jesus, we can see his claim of divinity, his teachings, his warnings as insignificant and continue to accomplish or seek to try to accomplish eternal life by our own favor or our own goodness. But Jesus gives us a warning in verse 35 that whoever would save his own life, they will lose it. As we wrap up our passage today, Jesus has, again, painted a very clear picture of what it means to follow him. We have to believe in who he claims to be, what he's come to do in our place. We have to, be, we have to accept the price it will cost us to follow Jesus. And we have to turn and put our faith in him. If you're here today and you've never done that, that's our invitation to you. You can choose to follow Jesus. You don't have to stand before God one day and be ashamed. But rather, you can accept the fact that Jesus has already taken your shame on the cross for you. If you're here today and and maybe you've chosen to follow Jesus, my challenge to you is this, that Jesus doesn't call us to follow him alone. Okay, He didn't call one disciple, he called 12. He's not making an invitation to just a handful of people, but to whosoever will. He calls us then to follow him in a community. And often it's that community that when persecution comes in our life and difficulty comes, that community are the very people who keep us going. And so my challenge and my encouragement to you, if you've put your faith in Jesus, is to continue walking in community with the disciples, relying upon Jesus' grace together.